Some people work in nine to five jobs. I am one of the lucky ones. Somehow I landed in the dream job. Welcome to Tales of a Luxury Yacht Chef. Hi, I'm Lisa Mead, and for the past 27 years, I've been working on luxury super yachts in the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, and my home turf of Australia. I've cooked for royalty, heads of state, celebrities, and all walks of life. I'm going to be talking to crew, past charter guests, and loads of people that are connected to the global yachting community. We're going to hear amazing fun stories and also lots of useful information and tips. So welcome aboard. You could say that today's guest, Joy Weston's chance encounter, changed the trajectory of her future. A leading entrepreneur in the super yacht industry, Joy has a lifetime of stories to tell and loads of great tips for those wishing to enter into it. I look forward to finding out that and much more. Hi, Joy. How are you? Hi, I'm good, thank you. And where are you chatting from? Uh, From little old Cairns, North Queensland. A beautiful part of the world for those that haven't been there yet. Yes, amazing. And where are you from? That accent sounds close to being Australian, but not quite. So where are you from originally? Originally New Zealand. Uh Uh, Yes. (laughs) Born and bred in Tamaranui, New Zealand, North Island, uh, and left... New Zealand when I was around 21 years old to travel. You know, it's funny when I'm I'm overseas, I, I've had mostly American guests and they always want to know how you can tell the difference between a Kiwi and an Aussie accent. And I do the usual, you know, ask them to say fish and chips or six and you'll hear the difference there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when you with crew, because our accents get quite blended, I don't know if I'm talking to um, an Australian or a Kiwi, so I actually try that little trick myself. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been I've been probably out of New Zealand now for close to 22 years, maybe even longer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've probably got a little bit of the the Aussie twang with a combination of British and occasionally the South African, but mainly <laughs> Aussie. That's that's quite the blend you've got going on there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like you say, you're dealing with so many different crews. You pick it up. Oh, very for sure. Quickly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you you finished high school in New Zealand, and what what did mm-hmm. you do after that? Um, I actually went into childcare. Um, had the plan to do a year's training to go into childcare and, and nanny overseas. Uh-huh. So that's pretty much what I did there, and then finished my diploma um, of nannying, and eventually went over to the UK to nanny. So do you uh, get the job before you head over or did you just sort of roll up and, and apply once you got to the UK for a nanny job? Yeah, I pretty much rolled into the job when I got to London. Um, I applied through some uh, nanny recruitment places before I left, but that was all obviously no internet in those days, so it was all through the phone. Um, old, old school. Old school. And then uh, from there, got to London, applied for the jobs and ended up working for um, an English family with two English boys, young boys. And what what was that experience like? It was great, but I realised it's not what I really wanted to do, funny enough, and um, missed hospitality and decided to leave after three months and go and look for a great job. I was a bit of a hospitality snob, so I decided to go five-star plus. In Very hospitality. nice. Very nice. And, yeah, sourced myself a position at uh, the Intercontinental Forum in Wimbledon in London. Ooh. Mm. And what was, what was your job there? 
<laughs> so I did a bit of um, waitressing in the restaurant and a little bit of housekeeping as well and then worked behind the bar. So quite a variety of roles. I was nice lucky cr- enough to, yeah, employ, I suppose lucky enough to um, serve a lot of people like Qantas, American Airlines, and then high-profile business people as well. Which is kind of an interesting uh sort of introduction to my next question which is Uh you know how did you go from that to getting on yachts that was kind of the the opening of doors wasn't it you had a chance encounter I think so yes I'd been working at the intercontinental hotel serving at the bar at the specific time which there was a London boat show on and a couple called uh, Fiona and Bob Freeman came in and I'd been serving them for probably about five days, but chatted to them during those five days. And they approached me. They just had gone for a position as captain and chief stew on a luxury 90-foot super yacht called La Paradiso. Beautiful. And, um, yeah, offered me a job as a second stew, which I had no idea what the hell a <laughs> stew was, let alone what a super yacht was, until they showed me a brochure. And I was like, oh. Yeah, let's let's go. I'm going to take that. That is so cool. So, um, where where so the boat was in the UK at that point? No, it was actually in the south of France in Nice. Uh-huh. Um, so I flew to Nice, joined the vessel there, uh, realizing it was one of the smallest vessels in the marina <laughs> at the time. Um, I didn't even know what forward or aft port starboard was. To me, it was just like, oh, my God, I'm getting on a boat. Um, And, yeah, never looked back, I suppose. So had you been on boats just for fun before that at all? Uh, Yes, as a kid, not luxury super yachts, but, like, jet boating as a kid, fishing, went to Lake Taupo for holidays as a kid, camping and fishing, but never expected to be landed onto super yachts at all. So you're on this boat, you're brand spanking you. Like you said, you don't know your, your port or your aft, your bows. What was the experience like? Because you you possibly with crew were the crew all new with you or had some of them they been had for a while? experience. So we had a first mate and um, engineer and a deckhand on board was quite a bit of experience. There was about seven crew yep. on board. We we're also a charter vessel, so it was all very very new to me. I mean, thank God my mum was OCD and brought us up as good kids to iron, wash and clothing. So here I am ironing to a very high standard, which I never expected to be doing, um, table service to a very high standard as well. And to be honest, even though I worked in five-star hotels and great um, training back in New Zealand and hospitality, it was a whole new level on a super yacht as well. And the fact that the boat moves, it was just overwhelming but exciting to learn. And I, I will say I had good teachers and Fiona was a great chief student. Oh, well, that makes a huge difference, yeah. If you've got a, a good starting point to learn the job, that's that's fantastic. Do you remember much about the first charter? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> and just concentrating on making the beds and getting the cabins ready and doing everything perfect was quite challenging but thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, good guests, they were American guests. But, yeah, I think pretty much for those first five days of that charter, it was just a blur to taking everything in more than anything. 
so I'm guessing that was mostly, was it around the south of France for that first trip? So we did, no, so we left the south of France um, around, it would have been May um, in 1991. So we left there and then um, travelled to Turkey, Marmaris. So we based ourselves out of Marmaris and chartered mainly out of Turkey and Greece. So I did six months with the vessel chartering out of there. And, yeah, I suppose the experience for me was the delivery more than anything because we literally had a week or so in south of France and then straight into a delivery. Did you get a chance to explore much of Greece and Turkey off charter? Oh, gosh, yes, yeah. I lived not even after working on La Paradiso. Um, I actually lived in Greece, well, not so much Greece, but Turkey and Marmaris for up to three years. Beautiful. So, yeah, I've had a beautiful time in, in Turkey and around go check um, up through Istanbul. I did a bit of backpacking as well for a month with a friend from Sydney, Angie. Um, so, yeah, I've managed to see some very good places around Greece roads, um, all of your little islands around Greece that are just Mykonos and all that, just beautiful, beautiful parts of the world. I, it's, I've yet to actually get to those areas, but um, for, like yourself, I've heard so many people rave about how incredible it is. Food's good. People are great. The water is just amazing. Um, yeah, it's just phenomenal. And I think a lot of um, yachts today with COVID are going to Greece a lot this year, which is good to see. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, so I guess my question is um, you you started off uh, on the 90-foot. What was the next boat that you were working? Uh, after that I left, um, I did probably about three to four weeks day working on a small 70-foot vessel was just sanding and varnishing antifouling, which was quite a new experience. <laughs> um, probably never do antifouling again, but um, I can yeah. say I've done it. Yes. Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, then I just got – I wanted to go sailing, so I went some sailing with some friends. About 20 of us hired a couple of sailing yachts from Sunsail and fell, I fell in love with sailing. Yes. So I decided to cross over from motorboats to the sail yachts. Yes. And um, I ended up getting myself a stew deck position on a sailing yacht called Nuku 2 with a Welsh couple called Rod and Margaret. Right. And I ended up working for them for about 18 months, which was absolutely amazing. And they too charted a lot around um, Gocek, Fetier, Marmaris, you know, all the remote places in Turkey and then over to Greece as well. And I'm guessing, obviously, on the sailboat, you would have been a lot more hands-on with the sailing in, as well as your stewardessing role. Yes, definitely. Um, it was a 50-50, you know, 50% inside is the interior and 50% outside. Um, but I thoroughly enjoyed the sailing, just, you know, mother nature and no engines. And it was, I suppose, for me, a good experience to learn about watchkeeping and understanding the wind and how things work as well. You did an Atlantic, one Atlantic crossing or more? I've done a couple of Atlantic crossings, um, one on a sailing yacht as well. So after 18 months, um, during those 18 months, I fell in love with an Englishman that had a sailing yacht as well. In between working on and off Nuku 2, I would help him out with charters and backpacker charters. Nice. Um, Kind of broke my heart. Oh, (laughs) uh, I had an unexpected surprise and um, I had decided that with that unexpected surprise, I would um, leave and 
go to the Caribbean. So it was the end of the med the med season. Yeah. And it would have been around about 1993 that I went and I joined a 72-foot sailing yacht, Yongit, with five South African lads as a stew cook. So <laughs> That would have been an experience. An experience of, was of a lifetime. Um, <laughs> Captain JJ was awesome. But I did well, say I did a little white lie and said I have cooked before, which I've cooked for crew but never done a crossing before. So to revision for such a six-week crossing was quite an experience. Oh, my God. I, my because first my first week was uh, I think we I over-provisioned, so they ate quite a lot of good food. <laughs> um, I didn't poison anyone. I did <laughs> seasick on my first two days of leaving, which was really strange considering I've been at sea for close to three years. Oh, boy. So, But it, I came right after, after two days. So we... Did the crossing, left Turkey, got into Gibraltar after two weeks. Um, and then from Gibraltar, we did about a week cruising around there and seeing places of Gibraltar, which was fantastic. It, that, again, that's that's definitely on the list as well. Everyone raves about that as a, a destination to check out. Oh, it's phenomenal. And it is, I don't think it would have changed that much and the monkeys will still be there and everything else. But we <laughs> managed to hire a car and go for around the place for a couple of days and then reprovisioned the boat and set off to the Canary Islands. And then we spent a couple of days in the Canary Islands, which was beautiful. Quite a short trip there, but was more to provision. And we did that. And then from, from the Canary Islands, another two weeks at sea and crossed over straight to Antigua. Beautiful. Now, you were just mm. talking about the seasickness thing. And for those listening, you know, it, being on a yacht is is a very strange environment because you can't pull a sickie, you can't have a day off, especially no. if you're cooking. Um, you know, you've got to work through whatever that situation is. And, you know, you, you were suffering from seasickness, but you would have still had to provide meals for the, the crew. But it, it reminds me of a, a charter that I did in the med a few years ago, um, was on a, a big sailing yacht and the owner was Nor- Norwegian and he had um, clients on board with him and we were about to, I think we were leaving Malta to head to Italy and he'd been warned that there was going to be a storm and it was going to be rough, but he still wanted to leave as owners tend to do. I was, the, the, the bow was where the galley was. It was the most stupidest place to have this galley. So obviously the yeah. stove was gimbaled. And they wanted like a four-course meal. You know, it was just horrific. We were bouncing up and down. And I was literally stirring stuff on the stove, running to the head, throwing up, coming back, having the crew hold stuff. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, the, the guests were up there drinking away to try and eliminate the seasickness. They all got so violently sick that they oh. didn't get to the first course. <laughs> but, you know, that's the job. And you you have to just literally suck it up and keep going so yeah I, I the disadvantage of going to sea and people don't realize that Lisa. Yeah. And, um, but it's also it's something it, I think it teaches you to deal with challenges in life and to work through things like this by being sick and work through through it and you come out going how the hell did I do that yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you you've obviously did the cooking and the stewardessing. If you had to pick one or the other, what would you prefer to do? Oh, uh, I did like the stewardessing. Um, oh, look, it's hard because 
I love cooking, Lisa. I'm not yeah. a chef, but I love cooking. Um, I suppose being at sea, doing the Atlantic crossing, I go more favouring to stewardessing, but I've also cooked on small boats, not just stewardess, but cooked for guests as well. Right. So yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one, but I'd probably go towards the stewardessing side. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's probably a yeah. smart choice. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. it's quite challenging being a chef and I take my hat off to you and anyone else that does it. <laughs> the provisioning side is um, phenomenal and what you produce in such small space is amazing. Yeah, it's a bit of a magical act sometimes, but, um, mm. yes, it, it has to be a passion for sure, I think. You don't do it unless you really, really love it. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah. Now, you you went on to, to work on bigger super yachts yeah. can you give people out there a, a bit of a understanding and I know this is a really dumb question because every day is different but what's what would be possibly a, a, a typical day when did you start your day uh, so when I got on to bigger vessels which were the 43 meter and up to 56 meter look a normal day with guests on board you'd be depending on how many interior crew, but generally you'd have three to four interior crew working with you side by side. But you could start at six in the morning and you could finish easily at, you know, midnight or 10 o'clock at 10 to midnight, 10 o'clock at night, depending on what your guests were like. Um, yes. You might have an hour or two hours off through the day. So you'd get up at eight in the morning, obviously have or if it was a six o'clock start, you'd get up, have breakfast, and then get started on the laundry and working through the laundry if you're on the laundry roster. If you're in housekeeping roster, you would start cleaning the main saloon, navigation area, areas where you obviously aren't going to wake up your guests. But then as your guests wake up, um, your chief steward would be on the radio letting you know that the guests have got to the table for breakfast and then they would... Uh, you know, direct you down to what cabin to work on and clean. So between the laundry stew and the housekeeping stew, they work quite closely together, would help go and do the cabins. Um, and then the second stew and chief stew would do the service. So it's quite a long day. And then you'd have um, morning tea for the crew and maybe for the guests. So the, the chief stew and the second stew would be doing morning tea. Um, then there's lunch between 12 and 1 and then there'd be afternoon tea and then there'd be dinner at 6 and then you'd finish dinner and you'd start uh, working towards getting the cabins clean and turned down, bringing any dirty laundry from the rest of the day down. So you, like I said, you could finish around 10 or midnight depending on your guests. Or even later if they're party animals. Correct, correct. <laughs> most likely they're going to be party animals, especially if it's the guest first time to charter a vessel, they're excited, they'll they'll party till two or three in the morning. So yeah. then crew are on rostered systems. One may go to bed early at 10 and wake up again at six or one wakes up at 11 o'clock in the morning, depending on what time they went to bed. I don't know about you, but did you find that what tended to happen is for the first few days, like you said, everyone's super excited. They're going hard and fast with the partying. And then maybe by midweek, sort of towards the end, they're spending a lot of time sleeping in and lying around and doing nothing. Yes. I think once once they get settled into their first two days and get familiar with the boat, and like you say, they eat, drink, 
play on the, you know, jet skis and things like that, they then start to get a bit tired. And I think the sea air and sun does that, which is good for us. And yeah. stewardesses probably feed them quite a few cocktails through the day that helps them sleep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you remember any any crazy situations that happened on any of your charters? Oh, look, we had an American couple that shared their wives and husbands. That was... <laughs> Quite interesting. Would have been interesting um, for housekeeping. Oh, it was for me because I was <laughs> on housekeeping when I found out. So, um, yeah, we had 10 guests on board and they were supposed to go for an excursion on land after lunch and my chief steward uh, radioed me to go and start putting laundry away in the cabins because she said they'd gone. And I always say when I teach my stewardess and deck courses, knock on the door of any guest's <laughs> doors, bathrooms, including your own cabin. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> and I went to knock on the doors and didn't hear them. And we had very thick glass in the guest cabin showers. And I kindly walk in there with knock on the door, didn't hear anything, and then open the door and go and put the towels away. And here they are having sex in the shower. So <laughs> I was like, oh, excuse myself, dropped the towels and ran to the chief stew and, uh, so that was one of my crazy experiences and something I share in my training on what to do and how to handle it. So that was kind of a bit of a below deck experience then? It certainly was, yeah. Yeah, it certainly was. There was no doubt about it. And obviously we had the guests on for another eight days. The guests came up to me and said, oh, look, we're sorry. I said, I didn't see anything. So <laughs> quite a lie, I did. Um, but she said, look, we share our partners. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, you- said, no, I didn't see a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you really, you can't be a prude in our job. And if you can have a poker face, I think that's definitely a bonus for oh, gosh, what, yes. what yeah, you see. Yeah. <laughs> but saying that, I don't know what's worse, seeing guests or one of your crew naked. I don't know. It's hard, especially <laughs> your captain. I've been in that position too. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think I've got it printed on my forehead, Liz. (laughs) Walking on things. Oh, God, yeah. So, I mean, that leads me, I guess, to the question, you know, what coping mechanisms have you learned from your experiences when you're working with the crew and guests? Calmness, being calm. Yachting is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get from one day to the next. And I think it teaches you how to handle the worst moments but the best moments too. And it teaches you how to work with different nationalities, different personalities. It's probably one of the most challenging jobs, but most rewarding positions and jobs as well to do. It, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you really have to be fairly centred and I think independent as a person. It, it's it's very hard because you're in this bubble of an existence where you're all living and working together. And, and what would normally be not a big deal of an argument could become something quite intense because there's just no escape, you know. It is. You're... Big brother at sea and probably bigger than big brother. Yeah. <laughs> um, it really is. But at the same time, you get with the right crew, Lisa, it's the most amazing experience. You are going to have your moments where you have disagreements and arguments or hate each other, love each other, but most, I would say a good 98% of the time, it is great, you know, and you put 
you put 10, 15, 30 people together and working 10, 12-hour, 18-hour days with guests on board, someone is going to crack a moment or have a moment, but it's how you handle it, how you deal with it and work through it. And you've just got to be really flexible and open-minded. Absolutely. And you're talking about um, friendships. You know, I, I've, I've had charters where I worked with a crew. It was like a, a temp chef job and it was maybe a three-week charter. And to this day, and this was probably years ago, I'm still besties with the crew. It, like you, you just have this, a three-week charter is like 30 years in real time. It is. Oh, gosh, you're so true. So, yeah. so. And look, I still keep in touch with a lot of my yacht friends as well. And I suppose a lot of my yacht friends now have been, um, you know, deckies and stews are now captains, chief stews, or they manage, have their own business or recruitment agency as well, or management. They work for management company. Yeah. it's it, And it's, it is such a great job. I think, you know, we'll go into this a little bit more with where you headed, but it opens doors with your guests. You can actually, you know, get into some pretty interesting career options just through the guests that you meet along the way as well. That could be an avenue for for future work. But mm. relating to that, um, who, who've been mentors to you in the industry and, and what sort of advice have they given you that's mm. really sort of hit home? Well, my I had two great mentors and one would be Amy Williams from Crew Unlimited, which has a huge business in the States and throughout Europe. Yes. And then there was another person, Fred Doverston, which passed away many moons ago, but was very renowned, not just as a captain, but also as a crewing agent in his time. I suppose the one thing that I'll never forget, Amy, I asked Amy, what advice could you give me if I started up a recruitment and training business? And she just said, good luck. (laughs) <laughs> and I was Quite like, true. what do you mean by that? And I was like, okay. And then two years down the track, I now realise what she meant. And I suppose you've just got to have dedication, a passion for it, and thick skin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's what I've learned. But, look, also I've learned from owners um, that I've worked with, uh, guests that I've met, and I think the biggest thing is, feel the fear and do it anyway. And that's probably one of the biggest things a lot of my mentors said, you know, if you don't give it a go, you're never going to know. So that's pretty much what's for me. Um, And I come from a a family that has owned a business, a very different type of business that I own now. Um, Parents were spray painting, panel bending, horse riding business. Uh um, For me, I think was the biggest thing is, you never give up. You keep trying. No matter how tough it gets, you just keep going. It's definitely great advice. Now, mm. just before we head into the, the, the area of your work now, um, are there any standout moments from your any charters that you just think back fondly on and go, wow, that was just a mind-blowing experience? That was working with um, the royal family. <gasps> the royal family. Um, yeah, lady died before she passed away. Wow. Um, so I was very, very lucky there. I've also met Tina Turner, Eric Clapton, Sting. So I've had some quite, yeah, amazing experiences. Then I would say my most amazing one would be in New Zealand for the first America's Cup in 2000. Um, that would have been incredible. Yeah, through the viaduct when the Kiwis won the America's Cup. 
And um, we were the boat that I was on, Kokomo 2, we were literally right next to the America's Cup. Oh, my um, God. Parked right next to them. So, yeah, it was like um, I suppose the end of, for me, my yachting career, but to realise I'd gone out of yachting like a, a pop of Dom Perignon. <laughs> <laughs> well said. All right, I'm just, I'm just regressing back for a minute. What was Princess Diana like? Very quiet, sweet, but uh, direct to just a really down-to-earth nice person, as what everyone else has said about her. Yeah, that, lovely. That's what you want to hear for sure. And yeah. did, did you get to hear Sting or Eric Clapton play? Oh, yeah, yeah. We played. Um, so they sung in the cockpit of the sailing yacht that I was actually on, Naku 2. Um, got me to play the spoons with them, which I'm crap at spoons, but it managed to happen. I didn't sing, but they did. It was amazing <laughs> with the guitars around the cockpit. So, yes, we had um, quite an amazing time. And that's the times I wish we had mobile phones to take photos. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, that's just a, a mind-blowing experience. You know, people yeah. dream of that and you got to live yeah. it. Oh, God, yeah. But I, And, to, you know, you tell these stories and people don't always believe it, Lisa, but it's so true and I wished I could just um, – that's why I wish we had those phones in those days to take videos of, of what that experience was like. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, that the, the gangs, the, the crews today are, are, are very lucky to, to have that mm-hmm. option, although, of course, you have to be super careful with the privacy side oh, of things. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so you, you you had this illustrious, incredible career. You, you, you sailed all over the place. You went to amazing mm-hmm. destinations. But. Then you decided to step away from being on board the yachts and you created this new business, Crew mm-hmm. Pacific. Can you tell me about why you did that and what it's all about? Well, I originally came back from overseas in, I would say, around 98 and wanted to start the business then, but it was just too soon. So I realised there was a market in the Southern Hemisphere and no one was training stewardesses or deckhands and a lot of people would ask me how do I get into the super yacht industry and I'd be explaining things to them and I started sounding like a stuck record and I thought well maybe it's time for me to start a business so obviously my last vessel was Kokomo 2 which um, I left in 2001 and that's when I started Crew Pacific and realised from the time I started on Kokomo 2 in 99 um, through to 2001, I realised there was such a need in Australia and New Zealand to train crew and get crew into this industry. The fact that the industry is just booming and booming more so with COVID, that um, there was a niche in it. So when I started, I had no database of crew. I had no database of yachts. Um, and that was in 2001 in September when Crew Pacific opened up officially. I had two courses um, running, a five-day, oh, sorry, an eight-day stew course and a two-day induction, and then, yeah, within two years it just took off, basically. So where were you targeting, where were you advertising to get people aware of what your course was about? Was it just through social media or? Yeah, word of mouth, website. Um, I was lucky I had great support from my last owner. It provided some cash flow to help me get a website up and running. Excellent. Um, and I did. Uh, that was the deal when when he gave that to me. And so I got that up and running. 
Um, I suppose with my contacts overseas, because I'd spent most of my time throughout Europe and perhaps little bits of the States, but mainly the Caribbean and South Pacific, I got involved with my contacts and they helped to get that business growing. So a lot to do with social media, website, word of mouth. I also ran a lot of free career nights around Australia, educating people about the super yacht industry. Smart idea. What Did you target schools as well, high schools? Yeah, but not too much, Lisa, because I find if they're 18, 19, it is a, a little tricky to get them on to yachts overseas, but here in Australia, much easier. Right. But I do target the schools like year 12 when they're coming out 18 to 19. Yeah. But I suppose the focus was more sort of at the time, not now, it is definitely for young people as well, but at the time it was more in the mid, early 20s, mid-20s to 30s. Yeah, you have a little bit more maturity at that point because, you're, like you yeah. said, you're dealing with people that are, are extremely wealthy, expect high levels of service. So the, the youth side of it sort of a bit tricky at that point in your late teens, I would think. Yeah, and I do actually now have yachts that will take on young crew, which is good. But, you know, when I first started, I was just building the business and my main focus was probably the, the twenty mid-20s at the time. Now it's a diversity of everything, really. And so you mentioned before that you you have these two courses that you do, but you also are a, a crew placement agency. So tell me how that works. The advantage of having the courses, I can train and place those young people, but I also not only recruit young and elementary crew, I recruit um, from captains to first mates to engineers to deckhands to flight attendants to chefs, cooks, everything you could possibly think of that the rich man would like, not just for his yacht, but his private island or estate, we can provide that. So generally um, with recruitment, crew come to me looking for jobs, but so do the owners and captains come to me as well. Um, And then I provide terms and conditions of our crew placement fees. The, The boats are vetted to make sure they are legit and good crew, good captains, and vice versa, the crew are vetted to make sure that they're all legit before they join the vessel as well. What do what do crew need to get on board an international boat or a boat here in Australia? What, what are the requirements, the basic requirements? Ideally, they need an STC W95 or a costing course, which is an AMSA costing course. The reason I encourage crew to get those qualifications to start with, plus obviously a Crew Pacific 5 or 8 10-day student deck course, a short introductory elementary course to how to kickstart their career in the super yacht industry is a good start. But the reason I encourage the AMSA ones is that they can then use those qualifications here in Australia on commercially flagged vessels, charter vessels, plus they can use those qualifications on international offshore vessels. That's definitely good information for people out there wanting to do this. Do you have any other advice for deckhands, future deckhands and stewardesses? Oh, look, to go into this industry with open eyes, be flexible, but really make sure they tick all the boxes. You have all your ducks in a row, have your correct qualifications, tickets. Make sure that the tickets that they can use, not just overseas, 
but here in Australia. And that's something, you know, I stress and cover in our courses. There's two types of tickets, an MCA and an AMSA. And then when they come to us or they're researching to get in the industry, they need to be open-minded, especially the Aussies and Kiwis, to be able to come home and work. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to take time when they are, when they do get into yachting, to also step back from yachting from time to time and take a little break from it. Because realistically, you're living the rich man's dream. Yes, that's right. And, and you're right. It is good to step away for a little bit and come back and be fresher for it. Because mm. I think the burnout level in our industry is pretty high if, if you just keep pounding it and pounding it. It's, as you said earlier, they're long days and it is exhausting. And, you know, it's good to step away, do something for a little while and come back. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing too with coming into this industry, be prepared to be a team player because yes. it's an industry about, it's not just about working on a boat. It, you know, the biggest things of what I say to crew is what makes a boat isn't just the owner and the captain, it's the crew, it's the whole crew and the team. Definitely. And I guess a, a question that I've been asking, obviously, obviously everybody, but how has COVID affected your business? Initially, at the beginning, it did a little bit um, to start off with. It was like I had 60-something jobs going on and courses were booked out, and then it was like a domino effect in the first two weeks in March last year um, where it just all went to zero. I was like, wow, what am I going to do? But I am a person that, um, like I said before, you've got to be strong, passionate, and don't give up. So I innovated and got Crew Pacific Super Yacht courses online where they can do their training from home and then theory training from home and come and do the practical training back here in the facilities um, at a later date through the year. And I've kept it that way and it will stay that way probably for now. I think it's better. That's a great um, idea. I kept in touch with all my local contacts Australian contacts regularly to see how they were going with their boats and when they needed crew. And I also kept in contact with the crew overseas. And as soon as things started to move within three to four months, I was able to get, you know, I had 40, 45 crew booked into courses. So I was able to get those crew into my training and then ready for being job ready by October when the boat started up. Perfect. So I, I guess um, a question for uh, you is, how would you describe the, the yacht charter industry here in Australia? Oh, look, it was booming very, very well for COVID, before COVID. It is probably a little bit slower than norm, and it's due to the border shutdowns. You know, Aussies, Melbourne and Sydney definitely want to come to Queensland, Queensland and charter. Yeah. Every... Sydney boat, Melbourne boat is in Queensland at the moment. If not, they're all in Hamilton Island, the wet Sundays or Alley Beach, um, <laughs> Gold Coast. So to be honest with you, um, they're still chartering, but it does limit the charters a little bit with lockdowns. But, look, when things start, I can't see any issue with the charter um, seasons picking up. And it's given a lot of time for boats to get work done as well during this time. Absolutely. What what are some popular sailing destinations here in Australia? 
Uh, I would say the Great Barrier Reef, Cairns and around there, not because I'm being biased in with that I live here, <laughs> yeah. but it is a great place, the Great Barrier Reef, to cruise and to dive, fishing. You've got Lizard Island. I think the Wet Sunday is the most popular place ever for yes. yachts. You know, weather is beautiful every day. It's very rare that it's windy or not beautiful. Even if you're sitting in port, because it's a windy day, it's still nice around the wet Sundays. You just can't beat it. How many islands are there in the wet Sundays? Oh, God. I think, I, is there 80? Would I be? Yeah, 80, probably very small, yeah. Yeah, I, I knew it was more than Not I expected. 100% sure there. I'll I mean, I'm going to spend a bit of time around the wet Sundays. Um, I know we didn't do 80 islands, but <laughs> I know we're probably about 25 islands. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And it, do many boats still do the Kimberleys as, as a oh, possible? Oh, gosh, yeah. So um, I've got a vessel called Coral Ex- or a company called Coral Expeditions. They have four vessels. They do a lot of the Kimberleys, um, obviously the Wet Sunday Islands and Great Barrier Reef too. They do overseas market, but obviously with COVID they can't at the moment, but that will start up as soon as everyone gets vaccinated. Yes. Um, and things will start happening again. But, yeah, the Kimberleys is probably very popular with a lot of international yachts and super yachts, and especially so much in the last 18 months it has been. Can you sure. describe to our international listeners what the Kimberleys are? A horrible thing is I haven't had a chance to get to the Kimberleys, which I'd love to, but it's, I suppose, one of the most rugged areas, but beautiful water, beautiful creeks. Yes, you've got crocodiles, but there are places that you can go to where there's no crocodiles. Great fishing, just a really good part of the world. Do you, do you think it's kind of... Uh, for our American listeners, a bit like the Grand Canyon, but if it had a river running through it. Actually, yeah, you would, that's so truly. So that's quite, yeah, that's probably how I'd describe it. Definitely the Kimberleys. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, it's definitely, oh, it's a place I'd love to visit. I I, I feel embarrassed to say there's so much of this of Australia that I still haven't discovered because I've spent most of my time somewhere else in the world. But uh, And that's what happens, I think, in yachting is, you really would love to go everywhere um, yeah. and you just can't. You just can't get to it all. No, that's right. Now, uh, I, I sent you a, a list of questions before we did this podcast and this is one that I ask all my guests and that is if you could be on board any boat in the world in any destination, what would be your dream as a guest, what would be your dream boat and destination? Dreamboat, I can tell you now, is Ulysses, a 107-metre expedition vessel. Like your um, style. <laughs> <laughs> I show that to my students every time I teach. It's one of the most amazing vessels you could ever work on, and I'd probably quit my business if someone offered me a job on that. <laughs> and but I'd you, go back to you're a, and a half no. I don't care that I'm 50. I would be back on that and straight away. You're a guest on this boat. You're not working. So this is oh, still, your enjoyment. I would work or as a guest. It wouldn't matter. <laughs> um, as a guest, definitely that's one vessel, Ulysses. Um, the places, oh, gosh, there's so many. But I would say probably the Maldives. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Mm, mm, love to go there. 
I'm, uh, I'm visualizing this right now. You're you're probably in the pool on the top deck. Uh, yeah. Yep. Just with a, a cocktail in your hand, t- just trying to decide what you're going to do for the rest of the day. Pretty much. And <laughs> if anyone's uh, interested, if they go onto YouTube and put in Marriott Ulysses 107 meters, um, it'll come up with a walkthrough. And yeah. There is a pool on there, so you all know that I'll definitely be there. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's what I'm going to do after this podcast, by the way. I'm going <laughs> to check it out exactly that. Um, Joy, for those people, and I, there'll be loads of people out there domestically here in Australia, but also internationally that are keen to find out more on how they can do your courses or become mm-hmm. part of your crew placement agency, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Oh, look, to go onto the website and contact training at crewpacific.com.au or, you know, obviously the website's www.crewpacific.com.au but you can also give me a call on 074041 Look at Instagram as well. There's a lot of photos of training and information on the training. So that's probably the best way to get in contact and I can, you know, direct them and help them in the right direction of where they need to go and what courses they need to do. Joy, you have been such a pleasure to chat with. I mean, people out there kind of know about this industry, but not really. And I mean, they know a little from the lovely Below Deck series that we all, some love, some not so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's really neat to be able to get proper information and also to find out all the fun stories of your adventures before you 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 headed into your new land-based role well not new you've been in it for a few years now but yeah. um yeah no thank you so much it's been so it's great been just hearing and learning more about your your journey to get to where you are today so thank you so much for your time Oh, you too, Lisa, and it's been, you know, nice to be able to share that with people. Um, it's hard to believe 20 years ago I started this business and where it is today. So, exactly. And a lot of that isn't just my doing. I've had a lot of support from a lot of captains, owners, crewing agents, mentors, people like yourself, Lisa, coming in and helping. I honestly couldn't do it all on my own. I've got great teachers that have been with me for many years, Melissa, Sarah, um, Emma, just I'm so lucky that I've had those support throughout the years to get me where I am today. Uh, somebody famous once said it takes a village to, you know, be a success. Correct, correct. And, yeah, those those people that have been with me have believed in me, so I've been very, very lucky. And obviously a good family too. My parents have supported me a lot as well. So, yeah, for my crazy ideas, they have helped <laughs> me um, grow. And I honestly never thought I could see myself get to this level 20 years ago, and it's written from just me being passionate about the industry, loving what I do, but the support I have from other people around me. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, mm-hmm. Alyssa, I won't keep you because I know you're always a busy lady, so have a fantastic day. The sun yeah. is shining here in Brisbane, and I'm sure it is where you are. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, And it was lovely chatting. You too. Thanks, Lisa. Before I go, if you'd like to hear more information on today's podcast or you have any questions at all for me, you can contact me at my website, lisamead.com, L-I-S-A-M-E-A-D.com. Don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even follow me at Chef Lisa Mead on Instagram. 
Until next time, I'm Chef Lee Mead and you've been listening to Tales of a Luxury Yacht Chef. <laughs>